Very good, in its way, is the Verzenay, or the Sillery soft and creamy. But Catawba wine has a taste more divine, more dulcet, delicious, and dreamy. This is Northern Wine Odyssey, part of Cork Report Podcast Media. To find us, search Cork Report in Spotify, Google, or Apple, and more. My name is Paul Brady. I'm a regional editor at Cork Report. And today, we're talking about the Catawba grape with my friend, Christy Frank. Here we go. series. Thank you to Dave Miller, as always, for our intro and outro music. And joining me today is Christy Frank. Christy, what's going on? Sitting, staring at my screen with nobody on it. It's a little weird. Um, Amazing. And... How so? You you these days you're dividing your time between the city and uh, Copac, New York. How often are you back and forth? Are you more in the city? Are you more upstate? Um, generally, probably a little bit more in the city. The I got three kids in various forms of in-person school and remote school, so their schedule does not allow us as a family to be upstate as much as I would like, but we're heading up there tomorrow for about two weeks for combined sort of spring breaks. And then I myself probably get up to Copay probably every other week just to sort of check in, um, you know, hang out as much as possible in these weird times, pick up wines for delivery down in the city and, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of back and forth. Gotcha. Um, so I want to I want to chat just a little bit about your history in the industry before we get into our topic, which is uh, uh, in part the Catawba grape, and then if there's time, I don't know if there is going to be uh, the uh, Muscat grape. But I don't, this might have to be a two part. <laughs> we, might, we might have to come back for part two as we're as we've learned there is there is much to talk about. <laughs> totally up for part two. Okay. Um, but before that, let's, let's talk about, about your career in the wine industry because it's, it's fascinating. And I think that there's uh, something to be learned from, from your journey. And part of what we talk about on this podcast is exactly that our jobs in the industry, especially now, um, with so many of our peers, unfortunately unemployed still, uh, it, I, I find that it's very just therapeutic and hopefully helpful to anyone who listens to this, who's in the industry, who may be searching for that next job opportunity when the time is right. So there are a couple different shops to talk about that that you have been the owner of. And then prior to that, though, is really when you got your start into the wine industry. So take us from sort of post-university to your first beverage job. Hey, got long and sordid history. Um, so post university, I was not in the wine industry straight straight out of college. I was I went to Cornell. I took the wine tasting class there, um, as all good non hotelies do, and just kind of 
loved wine, but hadn't really thought about it as a career, kind of fell into it the way that a lot of people my age sort of did. It wasn't necessarily something that you transitioned to as a career, but you wanted to learn more about it. And the question was how to learn more about it without having to pay money to do it and take classes. And um, I decided to get a job, a part-time job at a wine shop that was located in between where I worked at Boston, in Boston, which was Fidelity at the time, and um, where the apartment was. And it was a little shop. It was down in the basement. They actually called it the wine cellar. It was a weird license. I'm still not fully sure how they were able to do that to be connected to a market upstairs. And I started working like a Saturday shift. And then a Saturday shift turned into a Sunday shift. And then that turned into a Wednesday night shift. And then that turned into, hey, why don't you take a bottle home and and write about it? And then it became clear that, oh, I really could sell wine if I had tried it. And then and it was like, hey, why don't we? Why don't you come in? We'll have the distributor. This distributor can do evening appointments. So just kind of come in, and and I just got a little taste of what the industry could offer, as opposed to just learning about wine. And um, I definitely got a taste of retail, and I kind of got the retail bug, and it really never fully left my system. Um, that would have been probably around the mid. 90s. I'm definitely dating myself here. And, you know, that was when like a Malbec was a big deal. That was when Chilean Cabernet was the latest, greatest, newest thing. And that was when the windows of the wine book was probably about like a half an inch thick. And now, you know, it's a good two inches thick. I mean, it's a huge book. Um, So I kind of was learning as the industry was expanding and didn't necessarily realize that like all of these new things were new. They were happening as I was sort of in the midst of them. Um, It just kind of felt like, oh, we're learning about this new thing and this new thing. And that's kind of cool. Um, Then I went to business school, Columbia Business School, 98, 99, graduated in 2000. And that was kind of at the height of the dot com age. So, you know, I thought I was going to do what everybody did. I was going to go and work for a dot com and sell dog food or furniture or whatever. Um, The first kind of dot com bust happened in 2000, which actually turned out to be a good thing because the summer job that I was supposed to have didn't happen. I wound up working at Knoll in the furniture, um, high-end office furniture is my summer gig, which has a weird three-tier system, um, which I hadn't, that's not why I was working there. I just love chairs. I went back to campus and there was like an on-campus recruiting opportunity for LVMH and it turned into a job at Shefflin and Somerset, which is what is now Moet Hennessy. Um, so it was the wine and spirits division of LVMH. So I started um, in the industry officially at a big, you know, glamorous corporate job that I spent seven years there. Um, worked on a series of projects within their internal consulting, Hennessy, the launch of 10 Cane Rum. And then um, after coming back from maternity leave after my first kid, I kind of wanted to do something. I didn't, I didn't want the to step into like another really sort of high profile gig like Hennessy at LVMH's quite a profile. Um, the 10 came run launch, rum launch was a big, big deal. I just wanted something like, uh, I'm like, wait, wine, this wine team is open. And, 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 uh, it was, it was a, a team that was sort of expanding. And I was like, wait, that's why I got into this industry in the first place, because I love wine. So if this position is available and I can sort of step into it, I'll be learning all about wine within this different context. So why don't I do that? And I wound up, um, 
running the U.S. business for the Australia-New Zealand portfolio um, for about two, two and a half years. Had a second kid in that pro- in the middle of that process. And um, lots of things were happening. It's a whole other story about different changes that were happening at the corporation. I could write a book about that. But the bottom line was I was doing a lot of traveling, working in the market, visiting different wine stores. And I kept thinking, you know, if I had a wine store, this is what it would look like. Or if I had a wine store, I would never do this. Or if this was my wine store, I would do that. So it just was at the point around 2007 where I was like, okay, I think it's time to open a wine store. So I left the corporate world, opened a wine shop, and that's kind of where I have picked up in the New York wine scene. Isn't that, that's funny how, how it happens like that. When yeah. <laughs> you're, you're visiting all sorts of different shops and you're probably thinking like, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? And I remember studying music. It was the same. I would hear other musicians performing and be like, why aren't they doing it this way? Why aren't they doing it that way? Well, that's because you're supposed to do it that way. Yeah. That's your voice <laughs> that you're trying to, to bring out. So what were a couple of, of those things that you uh, brought to, to light at Frankly Wines, your, your first shop, which was in downtown Manhattan? I mean, one of the things I opened the shop in, I mean, this would have been the end of 2007. So this was kind of the advent of the beginning of that sort of like little local neighborhood New York wine play, but where not New York, you know, not New York state wine, but like your, your, your neighborhood wine shop, that was a really great wine shop. And it was kind of at the time happening all over in Brooklyn. Um, and, but it hadn't quite happened yet in Manhattan. So I was living in Tribeca at the time. Actually, I was living in Battery Park City at the time, very close. And I was like, hmm, maybe I want to I do this in Tribeca. There was Chamber Street Wines, clearly. And then there were like a couple little local bodegas. But I was like, yeah, I think there's room here for like just a little shop where you can kind of walk in. At the time I was studying for, um, I just started studying for my WSET diploma. So the, the idea was kind of like, let's have a shop where we can walk in. And it's basically every, every kind of classic region that's on the syllabus and then stuff that's at the edges of the syllabus. Let's just have one of each and offer it for a really great price. And then let's also make sure that we're focusing um pretty deeply on Southern Hemisphere wines because I, you know, nobody else was doing that. And that was something that, you know, I'd been around the country trying to sell wines from Australia and New Zealand. And then also we had a, a like a um, Argentine wine in the portfolio. So I knew these great wines were out there, but nobody was focusing on them. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm kind of going to do that. I want it to be really small, really kind of Boutique wasn't the word that I wanted to use, but like I wanted it to be sort of set up like a pharmacy. This idea that you walk in, you see the helpful pharmacist person, you know they're there to help you. Um, they're the first thing you see when you walk in. And so you just kind of have this great, easygoing experience where, you know, maybe you learn something or maybe you just pick up your, you know, liquid drug and leave. So I just want it to be a really friendly place, but without a lot of attitude. And that was actually the, um, uh, I guess the motto was fine wine, no attitude. Cool. And uh, we should note that that shop still exists at its original location under new ownership. Mm-hmm. Our dear, dear friend, Liz Nicholson, who uh, runs that and it's show twice down there. As big. She made it, she made yeah. it bigger. <laughs> make it bigger. But you have a bigger shop now also of your own up in Copic, New York, which is about mm, 35 minutes 
from my house and I love to frequent and buy <laughs> yeah so that is technically my husband owns it because it was opened when I still owned frankly wines and New York laws being what New York laws are um you can't have two wine shops with the same owner um uh, but you know so he he technically has that license but the state clearly knows that I'm involved. Um, so that one was kind of a, it was kind of a fluke. It's like the plan was not to open a second wine shop. I never wanted to have a, a wine shop empire. There's just no scale in New York in terms of having multiple wine shops. Um, and, but we had, we had gotten a, a house up in Copake and um, just happened to one day be sitting at the diner in the center of town. And I was always thinking like, where, I wonder where the, ne- the next closest wine shop is because that building, that old building pharmacy thing right across the street from this diner is for sale. I wonder where the nearest wine shop is and I wonder what that building would cost. Um, and my husband just happened to be at the little general store gossiping with the manager and the manager was like, oh, hey, your wife's in wine. Did you know that the shop up in Hillsdale just closed? So he comes and he tells me this and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So the way the licensing works, I knew that if I ever wanted to open a shop up in that area, now was the time to do it. Um, and if I wanted to do that within like five years, I didn't want to do it right then, but it just was kind of the thing like, okay, here's that opportunity. We're going to have to make this happen. Um, was sort of involved with two wine shops then for about three years and just kind of finally made the decision that this doesn't make sense. And if I'm going to keep and focus on one wine shop, it's going to be the wine shop where I own the physical space in which the wine shop exists. Um, so went through the process of selling Frankly Wines. Um, That happened over the course of a year, which is actually fairly quickly as far as something like that goes. And then opened, or not didn't open, but then was able to focus focus more fully on Copake. Um, And then since I didn't own a wine shop, that left me free to do other things that you can't legally do if you are a wine shop owner in the state of New York. Okay, cool much to be taken from your path to (laughs) where you are today. Um, For anybody who listens in terms of uh, the job search or just wanting to sort of uh, think about some other outside of the box ways. I I feel like nowadays everybody, you know, it was so cool to be a sommelier for for a number of years and everybody thinks about wine uh, from the point of view of a restaurant, but there's just lots of other ways. And I think yours is, is a really good one. I mean, get into a sales position, use your sales skills and, you know, work for a big company, see where that takes you. It could take you to owning two very cool boutique yeah. wine shops. Yeah. And then why, and, I'll, and knowing I'll be, a lot about how to sell the stuff along yeah. the way. Yeah. And knowing a lot about the, um, knowing nationally how to do it, how to do the pricing of it, like how that, that sort of that backbone of how do I do the pricing? How does spirits pricing work? You can get in trouble very quickly. Um, trying to purchase things and realizing you're not, you're not, not price competitive, you know, learning how margins work, learning how the big companies think, learning all of that was extremely important. It also, I mean, seven years working at a big company with a big company salary and a 401k and a matching, I mean, that that definitely, that has its benefits. And I would not have been able to contemplate opening a shop without investors if I hadn't done that. 
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now we need to talk about you being from Ohio. <laughs> because that's going to take us into our subject. That is the Catawba grape, which I feel like right now there should be some like regal trumpet music sounding because the more you research this grape, the more you find out that it was revered with like Shakespearean pedigree or something like that. Um, <laughs> Almost literally. <laughs> there there are, yes. are odes written to it. <laughs> yes. Now, okay. Remind me, what part of Ohio are you from again? So I am from, I am from Northwest Ohio. Um, which is up by the it's it's I mean we used to go to Putin Bay and we used to go to the Lake Erie that was that was what you did during the summer um, Cedar Point Cedar Point all the time and then my father is he was from um, he was from Covington Kentucky so basically he was from Cincinnati so I've got like my heritage kind of covers those two big Ohio wine regions. <laughs> Cool and Cedar Point. That's and Cedar Point. <laughs> this is great. This is good. Uh, great Lakes fodder right here. Cedar Point on Lake Erie, big amusement park with insane roller coasters. Great roller um, coasters. Yep. Yep. Okay, so Catawba the grape. So you and I know Catawba mainly, or at least have tasted Catawba mainly from New York State. I myself have not tasted any Catawba from Ohio, but there was. A, a, a significant chunk of time back in the 19th century when Catawba, wines from the Catawba grape were the epicenter of the United States wine industry. And this was down in the Cincinnati area. Have you ever tasted an Ohio Catawba? Oh, I have. I mean, because, um, so they started in the Cincinnati area and then a lot of German, German immigrants were settling there and they wound up in um up on the North Shore, up by the lakes, and there's a winery on the island of Putin Bay, which has been around since 1888, and that's where you used to go and you know try to get a little drinky drinky here and there. So I have had Ohio Catawba in in my youth, and so you would go to Putin Bay and drink the local yokel wines. Y- yes, and you would. Um, I was never on. I never made the extra trip to the middle to Middle Bass Island, but you could actually take a ferry to get to another winery that was on the other island. But then you had to take the ferry back, and I never, I never actually did that experience. And I, I think I'm thankful for that. I might not be in the industry if I had. <laughs> okay, so history tells us that the Catawba grape originates somewhere in the south it's what we call a chance cross in that in nature some native north american grape like plant crossed with some brought over european grape like plant and created all sorts of different grapes that that we know today as the labrusca species so i'm talking about concord and niagara those are the very famous juice grapes for both red and white grape juice and grapes like Catawba and Delaware that would go on to have uh, sparkling wine fame in both Ohio and uh, New York state. I don't know exactly, maybe in your research, you came up with this where the Catawba grape originates. I'm not sure that anybody does the, the couple of books that I, that I've been in and out of over the last couple of days. And if anybody's interested in New York wine, these are two books that you must have. One is circle of vines by Richard Fiegel. The other is Wine Growing in Eastern America by Lucy Morton. 
it seems like the Catawba grape might have been found and sort of brought from the Carolinas area. That's where another grape, the Isabella grape, uh, is documented as coming from. And then they've found their way up to nurseries around New York, and then it would have made its way out to Ohio from there. Does that sound about the correct uh, pipeline to you? That sounds about right. I mean, they think the... um... What I had read was there was a, name, a man named Samuel Murray who is sort of credited with finding the Catawba vines, planting them near his woods, it, near his house, and then they sort of went from there. Um, but they, the, that seems like it's reasonably clear, but like you said, how the grape actually came about, like that's the great mystery. Yeah, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, wine grape growing in in New York and in the Northeast, so much of this is lore. There just wasn't a lot of documentation, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. So, so much of this is is really passed down from the oral tradition, just from the legacy families. But uh, uh, it, it it is fun, nonetheless. The uh, the New York wine lore. Oh, okay, so from what I understand, in the Cincinnati area, I mean, this was this was quite a booming winery. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of cases mm. of Champagne Method Catawba uh, being produced essentially until they ran into problems with disease in the vineyards, powdery mildew, essentially. And I, I, from what I'm told, that pretty much destroyed the industry there. And the various French settlers who had experience making sparkling wine who were there at the time, found their way to New York where this other grape growing region was beginning to happen down on the southern end of Cuca Lake in what we now know as Hammondsport. Sound right to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at that time, they were also, they, while it was decimated down in Cincinnati, it was continuing to, to thrive up on Lake Erie. But for whatever reason, the international reputation of it didn't quite translate to um, whoever was making the wines up there. And we should mention that we're, what we're primarily talking about uh, in terms of these historical references are sparkling wines and also fortified wines. The, the Labrusca grapes were extremely high in acidity, high in sugar, and they, they didn't exactly make pleasant still wines. But Turned out they made pretty enjoyable fortified wines like port, Madeira, sherry, these types of wines and styles, and then and then champagne method sparkling wines, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, would go on to to some acclaim, as it turns out. So up in New York, we're in Hammondsport, which is in the Finger Lakes on the southern end of Cuca Lake. This was developed early on, and we're, we're again, we're back in the sort of middle 1800s. Uh, the Finger Lakes region was a very swampy, kind of marshy region, and and at the southern end of Cuca Lake, the, the ground seemed to be a bit more solid, so it was better for, for a settlement to happen down there, and it was also closer to the railroads in, in Bath, which would have uh, come in handy for shipping the eventual grape and wine production from that area. So now you and I were able to visit the Finger Lakes uh, together uh, last year, right? Mm-hmm. January of 2020, I believe. God, yeah, right before everything sort of stopped. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I think our first stop was Hammondsport, wasn't it? 
I think it on that tour? was. I think yes, because we we did the um we tasted all the sparkling wines. That was the first that was the first tasting we did. That was the first tasting. And mm-hmm. we did this at the historic Pleasant Valley Wine Cellars, yep. which is an incredible campus. If anybody gets to 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 make their way to the Finger Lakes, I, I highly recommend you take yourself to Hammondsport and drive around and check out these historic old winery buildings. Pleasant Valley is still there and still functioning. There are other buildings that are abandoned, but it's just sort of a neat area of, of both uh, ongoing wine and grape production and uh, some, some kind of neat ruins to check out. These wineries were huge, huge. The, wine, the winery in Ohio that was making this stuff was huge. These wineries around Cuca Lake in New York eventually grew to be humongous wineries. And again, now the epicenter of North American wine production would be the, the Cuca Lake region in New York. So that when we, when we got together at Pleasant Valley Wine Company, that was sort of arranged exactly to talk about the history of the region uh, in that very historic spot while tasting wines made from some of these older grapes um, like Catawba. And so I'm, I'm curious to, to, to hear from you in terms of your takeaway from that trip before we sort of go granular on Catawba and some of the wines that uh, are being produced today. So we started out around Cuca Lake, which I always think paints a nice picture and gives uh, the members of the trade on, on those trips a, a good sort of synopsis of the history of that region. I'm curious, both from a historical point of view and just from a now point of view, what was your takeaway from those two and a half days or so that uh, maybe was there something that you learned that you didn't know and you think is important to sort of drive home in terms of New York wine? Or was there something that you were pretty sure of already and then now can sort of confirm that? I mean, I think the... I mean, certainly the the primacy of Riesling and how just wonderfully it does up there, that's not surprising at all, but it, it certainly confirmed it. Um, it also confirmed something that I've I've always thought, and you know, I'm I'm no dummy, I've worked for a big company. I, I understand the realities of um the commercial realities of what you can and can't sell. But grapes like Lemberger, which I understand why calling it Lemberger is Lemberger, but Blaufrankisch slash Lemberger, like how well those um, how well those grapes do up there, and how delicious they are, and how they just seem so well suited to the the climate and the winemaking, and just like this this great balance um, of what you can do with them, and I just it kind of confirmed my my wish that those that we could hit a little harder on those grapes, even though I understand why they're difficult to sell. They just do so well. Um, and then kind of the surprise was just the, you know, the, the potential for the hybrids. I mean, and it's not just because we're talking about Catawba here, but just the potential, like what what's up there, how they can respond to, you know, how they enable sort of more organic, more minimal intervention, more, more minimal intervention, whatever. You have to do less in the vineyards and in the wineries to, to get some really great wines out of these hybrids. Um, 
and I think that's just that's exciting and kind of again let's set aside the commercial reality of right now. I think that's an exciting place to look in the future for for what those grapes will be able to do um, and the sort of minimal inputs they'll require, um, which is very much on trend with you know the natural wine movement. So let's talk about some of those grapes and sort of the the transition from the Labrusca grapes like Catawba and Concord, et cetera, to the hybrid grapes, to eventually the vinifera grapes. But before we get into that, Christy, I want to tell you and also anybody who listens to this about Open Local Wine Night. So most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they have been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines already, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that, local wine. It's super easy to participate. Just buy some local wine wherever you are, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It's really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register, and we'll see you on April 10th. Christy, I want to see. Uh, I, I can't wait to see your your local wine that uh, that you open on April tenth. Mm-hmm. I've got it on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably both open a Catawba or a Muscat. We'll have to get our hands on some local Muscat. Okay, I think so. Speaking, yes. <laughs> speaking of of grapes, so we we've talked uh, quite a bit now about uh, the Catawba grape and the the species of grapes that it's known as, which is called Labrusca. That also includes the well known. Concord and Niagara juice grapes, as well as some others. Those were widely planted and grown for sparkling and fortified wine production in places like New York State, Michigan, Ontario, Canada, and elsewhere in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. Then a thing called prohibition kind of screwed everything up. Coming out of prohibition, these huge, huge wineries that had existed, some of them closed, the ones that hung on did so by making sacramental wines, etc. Um, and then to sort of revive the industry, a French champagne winemaker named Charles Fournier was brought over to New York, to the Finger Lakes, to sort of breathe new life into the sparkling wine industry there. And what he brought with him was a knowledge of what we call hybrid grapes, but different from the chance hybrids that crossed in nature. So now what we're talking about is the European-American hybrid grapes that were bred in universities in Europe, originally to combat the phylloxera and uh, just uh, some of the colder, harsher climates in places like northern France. And he recognized that these grapes could grow in a climate like New York. And that sort of took over from the Labrusca industry. So grapes like Baco Noir and Maréchal Foch and Vidal Blanc, these very French sounding grapes that were created in French universities. So sparkling wines, fortified wines, and even still wines were starting to be made from these new crosses of, you know, North American hardiness with 
the finesse of the European vinifera grapes. And and some of those wines did quite well. And, and that, that's a fun history to, <laughs> to read. And later, another uh, European immigrant, Dr. Constantine Frank, comes over. Again, this is a wonderful story. I encourage anybody to to uh, to take a deep dive into that. He teams up with Charles Fournier. They do some great work together. They uh, begin successfully growing and making wine from the European vinifera grapes back then, namely Chardonnay, Riesling, and even a little bit of Pinot Noir. And uh, they the two would eventually go their separate ways. Constantine Frank wanted to go full-time with vinifera grapes, and Fournier was under pressure from the big wineries that he worked with to keep cranking out uh, the wines from the hybrid grapes. So there's a very quick history of Labrusca to the European-American hybrid grapes, and then eventually to the first successful uh, commercial vintages of vinifera grapes. So along the way... The the Labrusca grapes lost a little bit of their luster, especially when more successful plantings of vinifera grapes began. And there were still a couple of the big wineries that these grape growers could sell their Labrusca and their hybrid grapes to. Uh, and eventually, well, that, that, that's another story unto itself. <laughs> um, big corporate money came in, grapes from the West Coast, yada, yada, yada. And a lot of these small growers were, were sort of out of work. And what happened from there on out was something called the Farm Winery Act. Again, this is this is a podcast for a different day. But uh, the good news was is that the, the wineries did rebound and this, what I like to call postmodern industry was sort of born after the late 70s into the 80s. And I say postmodern because now you have this industry that is making wine from a combination of different grape species. So you have wines that are, we're now again making wines from the old school Labrusca grapes, from the sort of second wave hybrid grapes, and now vinifera production is sort of front and center uh, in uh, 1980s New York. So the Catawba grape in particular is... Fascinating to talk about right now, and one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you about it is because you at your, your shop in Copic at one time had up to three different wines on the shelf made from the Catawba grape. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> you may be the only sort of like, I don't know, non-Finger Lakes shop to to have three different wines available from the Catawba grape, um, which is which is pretty cool. And there are three very quite different wines. So let's talk about those three wines and the different consumers that drink them. Well, one of them, I, I mean, we had the 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 um the Lakewood, the little Catawba cans, which I had such a which, crush which on. Which I love. <laughs> and those, I mean, I think was the first time that I tried those up in the up on that trip. I don't know. Probably, probably. I think it. I think it might have been. I. I I'm kind of maybe I'm embellishing a story, but I remember trying them, and either you knew I was going to love them, or they knew I was going to love them. But I was like, "Oh, these are so good!" And they're like, "Yes, they are." And here's how you can order them. And I felt like I was like, "I'm such an easy, I'm such an easy target." Like if it's cute and it's a can, and I am a sucker for something with just a little bit, just a little floral, just a little sweet, but with really nice acid and you put a little sparkle in it. I mean, I'm a sucker. 
And so I just thought they were, they're, they're lovely, they're charming, they're delicious, they're really cute, they're in a little can, they're a great price, um, you know, they're local, New York. So it was just something that it, at our shop, we get a lot of people that are coming in and they're always looking for something, New York, New York, New York. And this was just so fun and easy to sell those. And I need to reorder them now that you mention it. <laughs> so I remember the first time I tasted that wine, I, I was at summer 2017, I was working uh, up in the Finger Lakes. I, I had sort, was sort of in between jobs and went up there for a couple months to just work some odd jobs. And I was waiting tables at a restaurant called The Stone Cat, which maybe you've been to. It's on the east side of Seneca Lake down in Hector. And the beverage director there, a friend of mine, Josh Carlson, showed me that wine. Uh, and he was like, you got to check this out. And, and that at that time, I don't know if they were putting it in cans yet. It was This was a 750. And, but it was just delicious. I mean, it was, it's got a little bit of sugar in it. I don't know, 10 grams, something like that, mm -hmm. 15 grams. And I think that little bit of sugar really goes a long way. In the oh capacity. yeah. Yeah. These wines are very high in acid. Um, and if, if you are going to ferment them with the skins and add a little bit more tannin, again, it can be quite a, quite a, a, an austere uh, palate. So that little bit of sugar in the Lakewood wines, and Lakewood is a is a winery, definitely been around a while on the west side of Seneca Lake. Uh, the Stamp family who've been growing grapes there for a long, long, long time, and make some really nice wines. Uh, these wines that we're talking about, uh, the Catawba that we're talking about now, does come in in bottles and also cans, and it it is sort of a perfect wine to have in a can because it's almost just like a spritz mm -hmm. unto itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just charming. And that like, like, you know, I'm going to harp on that little bit of sugar again. You know, sometimes as fancy wine people where I was like, oh, I like it dry, but just my goodness, you know, you've been to, you've been to Riesling tastings where it's like dry, 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 dry. And then you get to something that just has a little bit of RS and it's just like, oh, you just like, you relax and you're like, there's that, just that touch of sugar. Um, and Catawba in terms of its Riesling pro or uh, uh, acidity profile, like it's kind of reason like in that way you just want a little bit of sugar it's such a charming wine i'm just smiling thinking about it right now yeah or i mean or champagne i think that's another mm -hmm. i think we yeah. should talk about probably champagne method sparklings that little bit of dosage so many of the champagnes that i'm sure we both like to drink occasionally do come with a bit of sugar in them i mean i like to drink no sugar champagnes and traditional method sparkling wines as well but that little bit of sugar pretty nice kind yeah of nice. Mm -hmm, very much. Um, and what were, and I guess we should talk about the packaging. Packaging of the Lakewood products is is very good, very appealing. I think. What uh, what kinds of consumers were coming in and and drinking the Lakewood uh, sparkling Catawba? I mean, anybody that just wanted something, we were we were definitely rocking and rolling as we went into the summertime. Um, just anybody that wanted a little bit of just something fun, something easy to drink, something delicious, um, especially if they wanted it in a can because they were going hiking or biking. Um, so it was kind of like, I mean, it's a really cute package. So it, it's, it's definitely, you see it and lots of people shop by label. So people would just pick it up and, and I'm fine with that because they'd be happy with it because it's delicious. Um, but then anybody that we could kind of convince, hey, just try this. This is a really cool um, kind of locally made wine, little 
what I like the I like the phrase that you used about the hybrids. Um, chance hybrids. Um, anybody who kind of wanted something a little bit adventurous, uh, I'd be happy to put that in their hands as well. So, you know, kind of anybody that was up for up for something fun and different. Yeah, you're right. It is kind of cool in that it's both historical and just very approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's shift directions and talk about Chapika. <laughs> yeah, the other side collaboration, the, the, the other side of the spectrum, uh, certainly for Catawba. This is a collaboration between winemaker Nathan Kendall and sommelier Pascaline Lepeltier. Uh, why, don't, why don't you go ahead and, and give your rundown of this particular bottling? Because I think you have, you have each label in your shop. We have, yes, every every bottling that has been made, we've had a little bit. Um, and I have a little vertical squirreled away somewhere. Um, so there was a, I'll talk about the the sparkling um, because I don't have my notes in front of me and I'm going to misspeak about what exactly was what each year, but it's a, like the first year that was made in super, super, super tiny production. Um, and it like hand disgorged, but the idea was to, um, you know, Pascaline taking inspiration from Deirdre Heakin, who was working with hybrid grapes up in Vermont, wanted to do something with um, the grapes that we could find, she could find locally in the Finger Lakes. And she and Nathan managed to track down some organically grown Catawba and Delaware and make a wine out of it. And it just, because of that acidity, it just lends itself to sparkling and it also lends itself to pet nat really well. So um, the first time I had ever tried them, I was trying them blind and it was a pet nat Catawba and a pet nat Delaware. And I was just struck by how just delicious they were. Like everything that kind of a wine geek wants, they're local, they're organic. They've got this racy acidity. They've got flavors that um, are just a little bit off the grid uh, because we just don't, we, you know, how to, Catawba's not on any syllabus anywhere. Um, so it was just, uh, you know, kind of like a, a all ticked all the boxes that I'm kind of looking for when I want something that's made by people that I respect from organically grown grapes, from local, that's just kind of fun and delicious. Yeah. And we, we should just mention, so Pat Nat, um, for anybody who's listening, mm-hmm. is a, it's, just a, it's just a different way to make a wine sparkling. So we've been talking about champagne a little bit. Uh, Pat Nat, the way you make it is essentially the the juice, the, the grapes are pressed, the juice begins to ferment, and then that fermenting juice is then bottled. And as it continues to ferment, CO2 develops and makes the juice essentially sparkling. And it's a it's kind of a neat uh, way to, to, to make natural wine. And that, again, you, you really you don't know what the result is going to be. Um, I mean, there are those who are more experienced and more skilled at making pet nat and can and can sort of dial it in to some extent. But it, I also think it's pretty fun because they're just inherently wild bottling. Yeah, it's a little bit of an adventure, and it seems like super easy and super hands off. Hey, yeah, you just ferment it and then you put it in the bottle and it finishes. But you really need to know what you do, you're doing, or bottles explode, or you get all sorts of craziness, um, and you wind up with like a a, a bubble that's not quite as bubbly as a champagne would be um it's just a little bit more like lightly bubbling foamy it's just it's it's a charming interplay when done right of acid and bubble and kind of cool funky flavors so this pro the chapika project is certainly useful 
in that it these are two people who are who are modern professionals that are, are visible right now in the industry and it it helps to get the word out that there was this history for making sparkling wine going mm-hmm. way 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 back with these grapes that we still have a lot of planted in the ground here in New York state and that we can continue to 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 make uh, res- you know, h- highly respectable sparkling wines yeah. uh, from these grapes. It does not have to be, you know, sort of Riesling or bust. Or and I think, yeah, and it shows that the wines, like from a from a price point standpoint, um, it shows that Catawba. I mean, those are those are um, twenty five, thirty, thirty five dollar bottles of wine, depending on what year and what production uh, level they were able to make it at. Um, so it shows that there is a market and a potential to sell these grapes at the higher end of the spectrum, which, um, you know, that's a, that's a nice sort of long-term way for growers to be able to, to move perhaps a a small percentage of their production. And what in your experience has been the, the sort of life in the shop of the Chapika wines, who's coming in to buy those? Are they an easy hand sell or is it sort of they're in such small production that it's just kind of the diehards coming in and and already kind of know what they're getting themselves into? It tends to be people – well, there are people that know them and definitely will come in and be like, oh, I, 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 I'm here. I saw you have it. I want this wine. Let me know when it comes in. So we are pre-selling a good portion of it, but I also like to – I mean – Partly I can say this is my my marketing strategy, but partly it's also just I have too many things to do and I don't get around to it. Um, like I said, there are people that come in specifically because they have them. They, they know that we have this wine and they want it. But if I don't get a newsletter out, then it's people that come in and see that we have it and like, oh, my God, you still have this here. Um, they've heard about it. Maybe they've read about it. They aren't necessarily as completely dialed in as, oh, my God, the Chapika is coming out this week. Um, but they've heard about it. And they're like, oh, that's great. And I'll, I'll, I'll take a bottle of that. That's fantastic. And then if there are people who are coming in who are kind of, kind of looking for natural wine, but haven't heard about Chapika, then it's definitely kind of a hand sell to say, not only is this natural, but it's local, which is something you could, you should consider, period. Um, and we can kind of sell it based on, on the story. So there's lots of different ways to sell it. Cool. And, so I think that there there I've come across people who are are tasting who have you know their gateway to these types of grapes have been Chapika and the the their take on it is sort of oh look at this new and unusual wine that that we have here and it's the thing about it is that we have to remember it's not new and it's mm-hmm. not unusual uh because we've as we've been talking about i mean the, these grapes and wines from these grapes go back well over 100 years now and there were there were other wineries that lasted post prohibition and and still had quite a bit of commercial success throughout the 60s and 70s and one of them was gold, uh, gold seal which made some very famous sparkling wines and had a big brand that was called pink cat and cat, I've learned from the old school growers up in the Finger Lakes, is the nickname for Catawba, of course. So when I they talk about, yeah, I didn't know that. Oh fun, my right? god, it all makes sense now. 
right? <laughs> so yeah, pink cat obviously is pink Catawba. And when they, they, the growers will, would talk like, I got to go out and prune the cat. Got to go out and, you know, do this or that to the cat, meaning the Catawba grapes. So pink cat was a big brand. We're talking again, hundreds of thousands of cases uh, back sort of in the seventies. And again, as the vinifera wines sort of came more into to their own uh, some of the wineries became less interested in Catawba. Some of the bigger wineries were using more grapes from the West Coast or using some of the newer hybrid grapes or whatever. But there is there is sort of a legacy of this pink cat in another product, which is called Red Cat, which <laughs> yep. is also on your shelf at Copig. Always. Um, <laughs> so Red Cat is essentially Catawba, but there are some other red hybrid grapes blended in mostly to give it a darker color i would imagine because the times that i've tasted this wine it is overwhelmingly flavored with catawba Mm -hmm. and except it's just if you were to make a a regular rosé from catawba it would not be quite as dark as red cat is right so my my first introduction to red cat again is back that summer 2017 when i was waiting tables at the stone cat which is a, a phenomenal restaurant in the Finger Lakes. It's an all Finger Lakes wine program. They have, if uh, you know, get, you know, fingers crossed that uh, the restaurant industry rebounds and everybody's back open for normal service this summer because it, it's located in the Finger Lakes and it's an all Finger Lakes list. You can always find gems on that list, like wines with ten plus years of age on them, things like that. Now there were. When I was working there, there were always two wines that sort of functioned as rosés by the glass. One was uh, a more kind of classic rosé that you would imagine of the French style, and then, of course, Red Cat. (laughs) And I, when I was working there, believe it or not, I did not have a sip of Red Cat. I didn't know what it was, didn't bother to taste it. I don't know. I think I was just young and dumb. And But I tell you, I poured oceans of it for people. I mean, it was a huge huge seller. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering at your shop, what was it that made you bring that in and who's drinking it? Well, wanted to bring it in because we get a lot of people that will request a sweet wine or that will specifically, in general, they want something sweet and specifically they want a white Zinfandel. And we, um, I mean, first off I brought in I brought it in, uh, I think, almost from day one because, like, I knew of it and I knew it was like that sort of just that kind of white Zinfandelish sort of thing, but like just easy to drink and well known. And people were requesting it, so like I can I can easily bring this in and make people happy. Um, white Zinfandel is actually, you know, because we we were selling you know, two liter bottles of it. It's hard to, to, to buy white Zinfandel. You have to spend a lot of money on it on really big drops of it and not that many people come in and buy it. So it was just kind of a thorn in my side from a buying standpoint. And we just kind of let it run out one time. And the manager was like, you know, we, we're, I'm just going to sell people Red Cat. When they ask for white Zinfandel, we're going to sell Red Cat and we're going to see how it goes. And it went really, really, really well. And people were happy and people were pleased. And so we never, we never had to buy white Zinfandel on a big drop again while we were able to offer something that was local and cool and fun and make people happy um, and spend less money because we didn't have to do like, you know, 60 case drops of it to be able to match the price in Massachusetts. 
So it just kind of like, it's a fun, it's a fun story. It's one of those wines that I love because it ticks the, can I make people happy box? Are people already requesting it box? Can I fill a slot of a wine that I would rather not be buying box? Um, and it's also local. So it's another happy wine, happy wine story. And so I should mention, so Red Cat is produced by winery called Hazlitt, which is now certainly a sizable winery up in the Finger Lakes. Hazlitt acquired another huge, huge winery, I think back around 2010, give or take a couple of years, uh, which was called Widmer. Widmer was one of the like OG massive wineries that got going around the turn of the 19th, 19th 20th centuries uh, and was, was making a lot of sparkling wine and fortified wine with the exact grapes that we're talking about. So when Hazlitt acquired Widmer, another thing that came with it was, I don't know if you've had these wines or not, was a Solera that at this point, I'm told, goes back to the 1980s and that they were making like a sherry product from. And what? it's mostly Catawba. <laughs> so now, like if you were to look for it now, you would you would look for it from Hazlitt and they call it their Solera Sherry. Huh. And it's made with Catawba, Concord, and Elvira, which is another uh, Labrusca grape that we haven't talked about. And when they inherited it, Tim Benedict, who's the uh, the overseas uh, that the Widmer facility that is now known as, I think it's actually called uh, Red Cat. I think they named that facility Red Cat. And th- this is over in, um, in Naples, which is on the southern end of Canandaigua Lake in the Finger Lakes. And he, he told me that he did the best he could to research all the records that he could find in terms of <laughs> what the blend was so that he could continue to top it off and keep it going. And it's, it's amazing and delicious. It drinks like, um, sort of, uh, like, like a Muscatel Sherry. I mean, it, it's definitely a little bit sweet, but it, these grapes lend themselves well to making that style of fortified wine because they have raging acidity. Yep. And yep. I've poured this wine for a number of different um, people from sort of all over the place. I mean, Jamie Good uh, got to taste it uh, and loved it. And um, definitely Pascaline and I have shared it together. And this is this is kind of unknown. So for like wine dorks, sherry dorks should definitely seek out the Hazlitt Solera Sherry because I think it will kind of blow your mind that it is made – from these Labrusca grapes, but still has that oxidative, high acid, uh, you know, signature of sherry that that we probably both love. Cool. I will have to try that. I will have to find that. Well, it's, yeah, and it's, and it's, and it's like 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And you think about like some of these, um, like a Muscatel sherry, there's, there are, there are floral notes to these grapes that um, I just think when they're, when they're grown well, and when they're just not, when they're sort of allowed to let their their acidity shine and their sort of natural flavor characteristics cl- shine, like there's a pretty floralness to them that lends itself to a lot of different, a lot of different styles. Um, yeah, I'm going yeah. to get, get a bottle of that. Yeah, I need to get another bottle of that for myself. It's, it's, it's great to have around. I mean, it certainly, you know, it'll last a, a while and it's just cool to have to pour for people, yeah. you know, uh, to, who who are interested in the history of New York um, and all that. 
Okay, well, that man, I think uh, that that's a good place to to cadence part one. <laughs> I, I really did have lofty plans to talk about Muscat with you. So next time, have, yeah, we're gonna have part to. Part two. Have yep. Part two will be about the Muscat grape, which does have some history in New York, um, but is another one of these grapes that I particularly love to drink, and I think you do too, and and uh, has yet to become a look-at-me grape. Yeah. Give it time. Give it time. Cool. All right. Anything to plug, Christy? What do you got? Got anything coming up? Oh, gosh. Um, Articles, work with uh, Australia, brand ambassador stuff, anything? There will be. Gosh. Okay. So keep an eye out for... um, I'll have lots more information on this when it happens, but wine in Australia, we are in the process of kind of coming up with a sort of a virtual wine fair, which is going to be really cool. And I'll have more to talk about that once I kind of understand how that all works together. Um, I have an article coming out for 750 Daily about starting up a delivery program. I get to write all of the very exciting, I'm a retailer, how to do things articles. Um, And the firing line newsletter we just published a really cool article um about what's happening over in japan where hybrids had kind of ruled the roost but that's the opposite story that vinifera is doing some cool things so there you go that's my plugs probably more than you were you were hoping for (laughs) those are great lots going on what are your social media handles for people to um let me try to remember i'm christy.frank.wine on instagram and i'm trying to get back onto twitter where I believe it's Christy underscore underscore Frank or something I know. like that. I'm trying to get back <laughs> into it too. It's really fun. I find myself on Twitter a lot, but I just don't write anything and I don't like banter all that much. Yeah. I remember the, I remember the early, early days of Twitter. Um, and it was, it was awesome. I just don't quite have it. I don't have the pithiness in me right now. I need to like get back into that headspace out of the sort of visual Instagram headspace and back into the word headspace. Maybe in like six months, I'll be there. Cool. Okay. Christy, thank you very much. We'll definitely, I I, I will hold you to part two and uh, I'm sure I'll I'll correspond with you before then, but uh, I can't wait to see what you drink for open local wine night. Uh, on April 10th. I've got it. I've got a couple months to figure it out. I will do my best. (laughs) Cool. Thank you again to Christy Frank. Thank you for listeners of this podcast. Uh, Coming up on the podcast, we got Valentine's Day. So I'll be speaking to the best-selling romance author, Melanie Harlow, likes to use wine sort of as a trope in her books and she happens to be my elder sister so that'll be coming up uh, as we approach valentine's day thank you again to dave miller guitarist and composer for opening and closing music check him out at davemillerguitar.com see you next episode